Let's bow our hearts in prayer together. Father, we, we thank you that this morning we can come as those whose sin was as scarlet, but is now as white as freshly fallen snow. Lord, we thank you for that great love that you've given us, for that immense kindness that you've shown us, that you would save us, that you would look at us as undeserving as we are and see fit to give us salvation. And Lord, we pray that you would, by your grace, give us the ability to grasp the immensity of your love and to see more clearly what that means for our lives. Lord, guide us through your word this morning. And may your spirit reveal to us whether it's things we ought to do, things we ought to repent of, and the ways that you are working in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Ted was a little boy, his father, T.R. Geisel, would take him to the local zoo on the weekends in Springfield, Massachusetts, and they would count the animals. And when they'd get back home, Ted would go to his sketch pad and he would begin to draw the animals. But he wouldn't necessarily draw the animals as they appeared. He would make their ears different shape, give them bigger eyes, longer legs, bushier tails, and a whole sort of other features. And his parents were so impressed by this that they put him in drawing classes to help refine his imagination And every night before bed, Ted's mom would tuck him in, and she would recite the same silly poem that made no sense at all, but had a definite rhythm and a little bit of a rhyme and ended in laughter. And Ted's dad, T.R., was also a bit of a tinkerer. He fashioned himself as some sort of inventor, but he, he didn't make inventions that we would necessarily buy. He would just try to build elaborate, over-the-top machines that did very simple things for you. All of these things were ways that T.R. and his wife Henrietta, while they were raising Ted, used to show their love to him. And it's as though they were raising Ted to become Dr. Seuss. It's as though they were loving him in such a way that Dr. Seuss would be the result through the imagination at the zoo, through the poetry that made little sense but was a whole lot of fun, and through the inventions that were completely unnecessary but brought out a sort of fascination. Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, as he also goes by, or went by, was the direct result of the love he received as a child and the way that his parents loved him. And this is why it's so important for parents to nurture their kids 
and not just reinforce rules at home. This is why it's so crucial for there to be affection in marriage and for there to be encouragement between friends because the love we receive fuels the love we give. We extend what we've experienced. It's also why it is so crucial for us to regularly and consistently acknowledge the love that God has for us. We are only able to extend God's love if we have first experienced God's love. And if, we, if we've experienced legalism, some graceless form of religion, then a, a formulaic do-goodism, whatever it is, then that's what we will extend. If we experience some path to worldly success that treats the name of Jesus like a magic token, like what the prosperity gospel does, then that is what we will extend. But if, however, we experience a holy God who loves us because of who He is and not who we are, and not some potential that lays hidden within us, if we experience a holy God who makes us new at His expense, not because we deserve it, if we experience a holy God who calls us His children because He is a good Father and has adopted us through the death and resurrection of His own Son, then we will extend a love that reflects Him because it is fueled by his love. At the beginning of chapter 3 in 1 John, John tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Let's look at this love. Let's marvel at this love. Let's be amazed by this love. Let's be shaped by it. And here, in verses 16 to 18, he sums it up, the love of God in one action, and tells us to do something about it. So please, if you haven't yet, get to 1 John 3, 16 to 18. And let's read together. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here at Westchester, our mission is experiencing and extending God's love. We want to be experiencing God's love and extending God's love and have both of these going on in an ongoing fashion. And so I think John's encouragement to us as Westchester, a church who is experiencing God's love and extending God's love, is to first of all know the love you've experienced. Know the love you've experienced. You know, Foreigner may have put it best in this question of, I want to know what love is and I want you to show me. And... Um, in that great theological song. But there, you know, as, as Bill illustrated so well for us last week, there are so many definitions of the word love and so many uses of that word that we don't always know 
what is meant by it. And Bill, I, I looked for a pineapple pie, but, but no one except you has heard of those, apparently. Um, I, uh, when we, our, our language is so limited by, only, by having not enough words to describe love. And so when we, when we talk about knowing and experiencing God's love, what do we mean by that? And John says, this is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Know, know the love you've experienced. And this love, I, I just, so taking that phrase, knowing the love we've experienced, that he laid down his life for us, what does this tell us about God's love? First of all, it tells us that God's love is active. To call God's love for us active may actually be a great biblical and theological understatement. Think about the opening statement Paul uses in Titus. He says, in the hope of the eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Think about this. It will make your head spin. Before God said, let there be light, before God Put, created time, before time began, ages began, he had eternal life promised. God's love, is, he, he actively planned eternal life before the ages began. Then, in the person of the Son, God came and he died. He lived and he died, showing his love by doing it while we were still sinners. Jesus suffered, he died, he rose again, and then he wasn't done loving us because his next act of love was giving the Holy Spirit, giving himself to us to equip us and enable us for ministry, to equip us and enable us to know him. And then in another act of love, he actively commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, making disciples, teaching them to obey everything he commanded, and he is with us always as we continue that task. God actively planned, executed, and uses his followers to make sure that more and more here, until one day in heaven, we will have every tribe, tongue, and nation joining and singing together. And when we see all of this as the activity of God's love, I want us to see two things. One, there's not a passive bit about it. You have been intentionally saved. You have been intentionally sanctified. You are being intentionally used. And secondly in this, as we look at the Great Commission as being part of God's love, I want you to realize that you yourself are an instrument of God's love. That God intends to use you to show his love to other people. And isn't that great? And isn't that humbling? So many times I can get, I can get caught up in the things I worry about. Are these decisions right? Is, is, am I going to do the right things tomorrow? Have I sinned too much? And, and there's a simplicity to this that I don't, want you to be, I don't want to be missed on you. You are an instrument of God's love to other people. And maybe you need to write that down. Maybe you need to put that on a post-it note to remind yourself daily. I am an instrument of God's love for other people. His love is active, and it's also, and this is the obvious one, it is sacrificial. That Jesus left the glory of the throne room of heaven to be made in human likeness, to, to take on humanity. And it, you know, had, had Jesus gone from heaven to the Taj Mahal 
that would have been an insurmountable sacrifice. But he didn't go from heaven to the Taj Mahal. He went to the manger. He went to Bethlehem. He went to a carpenter's family in the backwoods. And he lived a very quiet life. And he faced rejection. He faced a lot of acceptance in his ministry. He faced a lot of rejection in his ministry. He faced a lot of frustration in his ministry. Think of how many times he said to the disciples, Oh, you of little faith, how long do I have to be here with you? When are you guys going to get this? There was frustration. And he died. Humiliating, horrible death. You know, our, our country has seen a lot lately of the logical conclusion of hatred and fear and bigotry. We see it all over the news. And it's, and it's too often that we see the logical conclusion of fear and hatred and bigotry. In Jesus, we see the logical conclusion of love, and that is sacrifice. One commentator says, love gives its own life so that others may live. You think of Jesus in John 15 telling his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his brothers. So we have the active, we have sacrificial, and we have undeserved. It is all about that grace. That grace is how you are saved. When we treated God with hostility and open rebellion in our sin, He treated us by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. It is by grace you have been saved, not through works so no one can boast. As His image bearers, we have lied, we have cheated, we have mistreated, and we have done everything else while reflecting the King of glory because we are His image bearers. And His response to that is sending His Son to die for us. Not because... We have an unlocked potential. Not because we have some ability within us on our own to turn to, to Him, but because He is full of grace. And He treats us with grace, not as our sins deserve. And He saves us by grace. And He does so with generosity. Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Going on to chapter 2 in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Moving on to verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When, when Jesus died for us, it wasn't God just saying, I love you. It was immeasurable riches. When he saved us, it wasn't God just signing a Valentine's Day card. It was him showing the immeasurable riches of his grace, that his grace is rich enough, rich enough, he has enough of it to save all of us in this room, all of us in the body of Christ and from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I, and I read this of, of him lavishing his grace on us, the riches of his grace, 
And I, I think back to the old MTV show Cribs where famous people would be like, and here's all my cars, and here's my 7,000 gallon aquarium with my pet shark named Fifi, and, and, they, and here's my indoor basketball court, and here's my outdoor basketball court. And the whole show was them showing the lavishness of their riches. Maybe we think of back to the 80s, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, where it was the same thing, just not with hip hop moguls. And I think of heaven of, of, of the Lord saying, here's the immeasurable riches of my grace. Here's the immeasurable riches of my love and my mercy. And we look out and we see each other. Because we are who he purchased with his blood. And he doesn't run out of that that mercy, it's not, we're not going to get to like the year like 2050 and God's going to be like, oh man, I, I didn't think it'd go on this long. I got to start budgeting. I can only save like 10 people this year. Shoot, should have planned this out. He has immeasurable riches. And his love is active, it's sacrificial, it's undeserved, it's generous, and it is God glorifying. At the end of that, that song in Philippians 2 about Jesus taking on humanity and humbling himself to death, even death on a cross, it says, therefore, God gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. And when Jesus was on the cross... It wasn't, as the song goes, he thought of me above all. He thought of the Father above all. This was to the glory of God the Father. The love of Jesus, shown to us on the cross, does not raise us up to a place of exaltation. It glorifies the Father, and it brings in more people to bring more glory to the Father. And this is the love that we've experienced. So knowing the love we experienced, we extend the love we've been shown. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He says, basically he's saying, what Jesus did for you, go and do it for other people. And so you can probably guess what the bullet points are going to be here. We love actively. Christian love is not insular. Now I'm not telling you that if you're an introvert, you have to become an extrovert. I don't think that's sanctification. You don't have to become like me in that way. A lot of you are probably thinking, oh, good. Um, <laughs> but I am telling you that whether you're introverted, extroverted, you, Westchester, we are a local expression of the body of Christ. And as such, we ought to know one another. And there are, there are some of you here who have been going to this church longer than I've been alive. We have, one, of my, one of my favorite things when I'm talking to people who don't go to Westchester and they say, tell me about your church. One of the first things I tell them is it's so cool. We have multiple rows on a given Sunday where there are three generations of the same family worshiping together. And what a blessing that is. 
that we are, we are a family church in that way, in every sense of the word. And we, we want our kids worshiping with us in here because there is a value to that. And so there are some of you who you've been here 30, 40 years or more, and you're like a walking history book of the ways God has moved through this fellowship. Some of you dating back to when we were Highland Park Evangelical Free Church over on Amherst and Euclid. And there are some of you who have been here three years or less. And you don't know who everyone is. And some of you who have been here decades, you don't know who the new people are. Here's what I want you to do as as a point of application this morning. I want you this morning, put all your plans on hold, stick around an extra five to ten minutes and talk to people. Get to know them. We talk all the time, like we joke a lot with the greeting time, like, oh, I wish that could go on forever. Let's extend it this morning. This morning, when, when church gets done, after communion, after we sing the doxology, hit pause on whatever your plans are, get to know some people, and maybe take some of those people out for lunch and get to know them more. Or invite them to your house later this week and get to know them more. There's a, a unity that we can have as a church that goes so much deeper than just voting the same at a congregational meeting. And a unity from knowing each other, from sharing life. And so today, would you, after the service, either reconnect with someone you haven't talked to for a long time, even though you worship together every week, or get to know someone new, And let's develop more of that next level unity by a love that is active. And not just a, I love worshiping with you, but I need to know you in order to love you. And so I want to know you because you're my neighbor and I love you as myself. It's sacrificial. I'm going to start pulling some some stuff out of Acts. So in Acts 2, it says believers had all things in common. Whenever someone was in need, another believer sold what they had to, to address that need. An example we get of this in Acts 4 is Barnabas sells a piece of property to supply the needs of believers in the church. Crazy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell this. I'm just going to give it all. We also have Paul in 2 Corinthians. He's raising money for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had a lot of needs in a lot of different times. So Paul is getting ready to come to Corinth to raise money, and he tells them about the Macedonian church. He says, the Macedonian church gave beyond their means, and they asked us for another opportunity to give because they wanted to show the love of Christ. And I know you want to show the love of Christ, so when we come, we're going to be taking up money, and I hope you're ready for it. And there is a sacrifice to that. And maybe there's some things in your life that you have budgeted into whatever your spending is that maybe you have the wrong titles to the line items. Or maybe you need to hold a little loosely to some of the optional line items. And that's something between you and the Lord to pray about. Next, as you can guess, 
It's undeserved. This is, God has shown us grace. And we show the same love because God has done it to us. And I, I want us to, to look real quick because there's, there's a depth here that we're calling. And if there's any level of deserving in this, it is, it is only because of one thing. And that's the, the, that someone is our brother or sister in Christ. And that's, that's the only qualification there. Now, I think we should be wise in how we help people. Be careful. I think, there's, I think we can help people in a way that's hurtful. We can help them in a way that's unresponsible. But let's make sure that when we help, it's in a way that reflects the grace of God. And we see a brother or sister in Christ. We don't necessarily need to look at what are their qualifications, what are their what, what's their ability to, to do something with this? But if we see a need, we help it. And we do so because of what God has done for us. The next one we're going to spend a little more time on, and that's the generosity. I, when, growing up in Omaha, one of the great things about growing up in Omaha is the baseball event that I got to go to virtually every year, and that's the College World Series. And we went every year because we got like the $6 tickets for general admission. We were were bleacher bums, and we loved it. And one of the best parts of being a bleacher bum back in the early mid-90s was the Twizzler man. He should have been on ESPN, but I don't think he ever was because he was the hero of the College World Series. I don't care who won it. The Twizzler man was the hero because you would go to the College World Series and, and you'd sit in the bleachers, and you would sit close to the Twizzler man. And sometimes it was a bag, sometimes it was a cooler, but he had Twizzlers. And he would go to the grocery store, and he'd, he'd just take all the Twizzlers off the shelf and say, do you have any more in the back? And he would buy them. And he'd bring them to the College World Series, and between innings, he'd get out Twizzlers and he'd hand them out. But he had rules that you had to follow. And I don't remember all of them, but I remember one of them was brush your teeth, because he didn't want to be held liable for our dental bills coming up. <laughs> But then the other one, and he would get whole sections of the bleachers to say the rules together, and then he'd walk through and climb over seats and hand out the bleachers, was don't be stingy. And he's living it out. I mean, this man bought hundreds of dollars worth of Twizzlers every year, and he would, he would get a chorus of 40, 50 people in the bleachers, midweek game in the afternoon, don't be stingy. And I feel, I don't, I don't know if that man was a believer, but if he was, like First John like just had him pegged. Don't be stingy. And so we want to live and extend the love of God in a generous way. And Westchester, you guys are so good at this. Like, I, I, like this is the epitome. Like right now, you're the choir, I'm preaching to you. You are a generous bunch. And I praise God for that because God does so much through this church's generosity. Through our benevolent fund, we've been able to help so many people. We continue to help people. And there's so much ministry that happens just behind closed doors in unknown ways to the congregation through that benevolent fund. 
not just people off the street, but people in the body, and, and, and going out the doors in, in generous ways. And it, it is such a blessing to be at a church with a benevolent fund that's like a pot of coffee at Perkins. It's just, it just seems bottomless sometimes. And every now and then we find that bottom, and we tell you, and you guys are so generous. We are able to send out so many global and local partners through the generosity of this church. We have been able to bless the school. Steve had a teacher tell him that they don't know how they do ministry without the gifts that we give them at the beginning of the year. They don't know how they'd educate without some of those gifts. And so if ever there was a... I, I don't believe in patting yourself on the back, but I'll, I'll pat you on the back. You're, you guys are great. Thank you. Thank you for honoring God in that way. And... How can we grow? I want, first of all, I want to dispel the rumor that there's only one currency we can be generous in. A lot of times we think of generosity as, all right, I'll get out the checkbook. All right, I'll be, I'll be generous in the currency of the U.S. dollar. There's, we can be generous in so much more. There are people, all, what they really need that we have the ability to meet is they need someone just to sit down and, and spend time with them. Would you be generous in your time? Go visit shut-ins from the church. Make sure they know they're not forgotten. Visit people in the hospital. Help out young moms. Offer free babysitting to those with like kids in the toddler range and, and under. Would you be generous with that? Would you be generous with food? And I know you are. John Bowman will tell you you are after what he went through with his surgery. His, you had to buy another freezer, didn't you, John? <laughs> Just about close. Be generous in how you use your home. Bring people into your home. Be generous with listening. There's a lot of people, they don't need, they don't need financial help right now. They don't need rides. They don't need food. They just need someone to listen. God gave all of you two ears. You can do that. Be generous. So how does this look in Scripture? How does generosity look in Scripture? We already talked about Paul. Or we talked about Barnabas. We talked about the Macedonian church. Do you realize that Paul's second missionary journey, was he was sent out, initially sent out, to just do one thing take the letter of the Jerusalem council out and encourage the churches. Paul, go encourage the churches. We're going we're to send out, we're going to send out Paul, arguably their best teacher. If he wasn't their best teacher, then they were really holding on to something in Antioch. We're going to send out Paul to go encourage the churches. We have the case of the church in Jerusalem. Early in Acts, Paul's raising money for them because of some tragedy that hit but then later in the New Testament, around the time of 2 Corinthians, they're raising money for them, it seems, a second time. And here's the thing. They weren't just raising money and like sending a check. They couldn't wire money. So anytime a church took an offering and sent money, they sent someone with it. And so they're sending people out. The church in Antioch just sent Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary journey. They didn't really know what the goal was, but we need to, they were praying and fasting, we need to send these guys out. Um, 
as we, as we encounter other needs within the body of Christ, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this and I'm going to bring someone up. I want you to realize when you pray for God to meet the need of someone around you, that you may be God's answer to that prayer. And when we pray, we need to pray with that level of openness and humility. Sometimes in my, this, here, here's a moment of me confessing sin. Sometimes I pray like I'm a coach. All right, God, uh, if you'd go meet their need, heal them, give them guidance because they're a train wreck, and then um, give everybody really good food, that'd be great. Amen. And I pray like I'm telling God what he needs to do. Instead of really seeking God's will on providing for someone and caring for their needs with the openness that I might be part of it. That's the posture I need to take. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, a, I have a friend here, uh, Philip Herman, if you could come on up. Philip is the pastor of Highland Park Community Church. Uh, just straight north of where this church was located in the 40s. Uh, and Philip has been, you've been there for four years now, and it's been a while. We asked you to come this morning. Give us an update. Tell us what God is doing at Highland Park, um, and then with that, uh, just, just tell us how we can be praying for you right now. Well, thank you. Sorry we're late. Um, Pastor Bradley was preaching this morning, and he went long, so um, that was un- not in my control, so... Um, I want to just make sure that you're aware we're going to be out, out in the foyer afterwards, and we can certainly meet you. My wife, Pam, of uh, 27 years, is with us this morning. I have our oldest daughter, Abigail, who I'll be taking to Judson University this week, is with us. And, and then our two youngest, Nathaniel and Kaylin. And we actually had a board member that was at our service this morning, Steve Hall, and he's here with us too, so you might even get a chance to meet him. But you heard from Pastor Chuck about what a blessing it is when three generations of people are following the Lord, but what happens if it goes backwards? What happens if three generations of people walk away from the Lord? And my friends, for 25 years, there was not a healthy, growing church directly east of here in the north side in Highland Park for 25 years. And what happens when that happens is that wickedness rules the day. And evil is allowed to grow. And what that manifests itself is in broken families. It manifests itself in violence. It manifests itself in low expectations. It manifests itself in landlords taking advantage of people and exploiting the poor, employers doing the same thing. It manifests itself in things that are not of God. And so we've stepped into a neighborhood saying, how can we, our our slogan, our theme is, how can we love love the children of this neighborhood and by loving the children of this neighborhood, love their families? Because we're trying to demonstrate that God's way is different. His righteousness looks different. And so the ways that I'm going to ask you to really step into what we're doing is by coming back and bringing light 
into darkness. We have begun a joint service with True Bible Baptist Church, which is the building that they own the building that we are in. And they're a predominantly all-black congregation. And we're a multiracial congregation of mainly lost people. Some elderly saints, but mainly lost people. And we're, we've begun a journey of coming together and, and trying to navigate how do we come together as one congregation. And then we've begun an opportunity to, to love on people in the neighborhood by, by having a, a resale shop called Renew Resale Shop. That every day we talk about dignity in the exchange. That if you can't afford the things that are in our store, then you can volunteer an hour and get $12 of store credit. But you give us something and we'll give you something. We talk about, and I just sat down with the Madison Elementary principal two weeks ago, and she's brand new at the job. And I talked about whiz kids on Monday night and, and people coming and bringing the meal. And, and she's talking about how can we double the number of kids there and move from 20 to 25 kids to 45 to 50 kids. And she shared with me, she said, 90% of our first graders are not reading at grade level. And the fact that every week you're spending 25 minutes bringing volunteers in to read to my children is absolutely wonderful. On Tuesdays and Wednesdays, can you leave work a little bit early? Because we're going to venture into additions to our programs that would, from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock, would help North students and Harding Middle School students on Wednesdays to do better in math. The average proficiency in any school in the state of Iowa right now is 70%. North High School is 49%. Half of the student body cannot do math. We have houses that we're working on and providing a place for people to live. We're building a child care center and need skilled people that simply know how to run a cordless drill and hang drywall, and we need you. So I'm, I'm sharing with you that God has opened a door and he's shining his light back on a neighborhood, but we cannot do it alone. And as Pastor Chuck said, it's great sending money, but most of what we need is simply your time and a little bit of it to love on people in the neighborhood. So thank you. We'll certainly talk to you afterwards about some of these opportunities. Thanks. So good to be here. Thank you, Philip. And uh, Philip and I were talking earlier this week, and he said uh, for Highland Park Community Church people coming, uh, for their part of the combined service, him and his wife are the only married couple in the church. And so they have, they've been reaching out through the schools to a lot of kids. Uh, and some of those kids' parents have said, hey, I, I like what you're doing with my kid. I'm going to start coming on Sunday morning. But they don't, they don't know the Lord. And so there's a great opportunity. There's a great need. Uh, I want to let you know the elders and I have been praying about opportunities and, and, and direction for how we as Westchester can partner with Highland Park Community Church. Uh, 
I want you to do two things for me in that regard. I want you to personally, individually just be praying, God, is there something I could be doing here? Is there something I, as an individual, can do? And secondly, the elders, uh, we're going to have a meeting on the 25th after church. (laughs) So uh, Austin and I have both been on vacation, so this is really fun. Um, So before you go to the luncheon for Austin, we want you to stay in here for a few minutes, and we're going to talk about what, what this path of us partnering with Highland Park might look like. Um, so please plan on, on doing that on the 25th, um, and, uh, and we'll see what God has for us in this. But let's follow him with faith. Um, and then uh, as we love, whether it's loving each other, loving the believers in Highland Park, loving the church in Highland Park, let's make sure how we do it is glorifying to God that it does not reflect back on us, that Westchester doesn't get a badge of like, we don't, we don't get a merit badge that we can all wear on our sashes, like the, like the old school Awana. Uh, no, I'm not knocking it, I'm just, just saying. Um, we, we don't get a merit badge. God gets glory, and that's the goal. And there are so many times when the church outreach question is, is essentially this. If we put it in its bluntest forms, will it put butts in our seats? And that's, that's the question I hear so many times when I talk to people about outreach. But will it put people in my seats? As we love Highland Park Community Church, our goal is not to put people in our seats, it's to put people in the seats of heaven. And our goal with Hoover is to get people into heaven. And, and to get more people worshiping God. Which, which comes to the last thing, that knowing the love we've experienced, extending the love we've been shown, results in this. Experience extending God's love points us and others to the source. This is what, this is what John says. He says, if, if anyone has the world's good deeds and does not and, and and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does God's love abide in him that is the that is the call of don't be stingy little children let us love in word let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth now what if what if God was completely absent from you but you got a card every February the 14th Happy Valentine's Day. Love your creator. And, and he wrote, I love you so much, but he was completely absent all the other time. It would, it would be hollow. It would, it would be void of meaning. Now let me turn the question around. What if God never said the word love? What if he never said the word love, but did everything else that he's already done? He never said the word love. He never professed his love, but he made you in his likeness and continued to reach down to you after you sinned. What if he never said I love you, but he still long promised, sent his son to live a humble life, face rejection, die on the cross, rise again, and offer forgiveness of your sins. Then sent his disciples into all the world to make disciples who make disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you would one day hear the gospel and start following him so that your sins could be forgiven. You could have eternal life and a home in heaven. 
And then when we got to heaven, which he had prepared for us, God said, by the way, I love you. We would probably at that point say, I know. Because of his actions, because of his deeds. Thankfully, God does both, constantly saying he loves us and showing it in his actions. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, a new command I give you, as I have loved you, love one another. By this, the world will know you're my disciples. I mixed up the word order there. By this, the world will know you're, you're my disciples. That you love one another as, just as I have loved you. When we love one another in the same way that we've been loved by God, It shows us, as believers, the love of God. We are reminded that God is providing for me. God cares for me because he sent my brother in Christ. He sent my sister in Christ. The body of Christ has reached out to me in this time of need. They've cared for me. They've exalted him. And it shows the world the value of his love, the treasure of his love. And it reflects his glory. And so this morning... As we take communion, as we do what Jesus told us, remember that this is my body broken for you. Remember this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the making of a new covenant. As we remember what Jesus did for us, would we all also say, God, how can I love my brother in the way that you love me? to point them to you, to point others to you. And let's remember what Jesus has done for us. As those who are going to come and, and, and distribute the elements, would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross. We thank you that we are so unworthy and you saved us. You are such a great God. Lord, in this time, whatever our thoughts are going on, whether it's, it's how to love someone, maybe it's thinking maybe we haven't loved them enough, maybe it's thankfulness for how someone has loved us. God, whatever that is, Lord, we want to turn our thoughts to remembering that Jesus died on the cross for us, that his body was broken and torn, that his blood was poured out, that you received his sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.